Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you bring your faith into the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Zapiniak. Kit, you got married. Kit Zapiniak Knee Cross. So we are excited about Kit and her recent marriage, so glad to let everyone know on the show about that today. Yeah, definitely a big change to the last name there. We'll work on the pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good Pol- good Polish name and I I'm, despite being Polish, I got to do my do better on that one. So <laughs> Yeah, so thanks for tuning in again this week everyone. We're really glad to have you and just a reminder you can catch us here every week on your favorite Catholic radio station. If you do miss an episode or just want to catch up on any past episodes, go to mncatholic.org/podcast. You'll find nearly 100 past episodes there. We're coming up on 100. Make sure to leave us your comments, your questions, and then give us a five-star rating on your podcast app. That'll help everyone else find us more easily. Well, in today's episode, we have a great conversation coming up with one of our very fine Catholic legislators. In our mailbag segment, we look at presidential powers and executive orders. What are they and why do they exist? And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start putting your faith into action. In our bricklayer segment, we have a mission for each listener to take part in during Advent. And listeners, if you have an idea for our bricklayer segment, or maybe you have a question for the mailbag segment, make sure to email those to us show at mncatholic.org. And again, you could also leave us a comment or question in the comments section on your podcast app or connect with us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Just search for Minnesota Catholic Conference. Well, uh, we've got a great guest for this week's show. Our listeners remember that we like to feature Catholics at the Capitol. So not only do we put on an event called Catholics at the Capitol, we also want to profile the good work that Catholics are doing in state government. And today we're blessed to have on the show State Senator Michelle Benson. Uh, Senator Benson is a Republican senator from Ham Lake, Minnesota. She served as Deputy Majority Leader in the Minnesota Senate and Chair of the Health and Human Services Finance and Policy Committee. She was originally uh, elected in 2010 and began her service in 2011. We're glad to have Senator Benson on the show today. Welcome, Senator Benson. I'm glad to be here with you. Thank you for the invitation. Uh, I think people first want to know, why did you decide to run for office? What propelled you to leave a successful career and spend more of your time? Uh, You certainly haven't left your full-time work, but at the same time, why have you decided to vote yourself to public service? Well, really long story, but I'll make it short. My parents raised me with two things, my faith being really important and the privilege of this country. They encouraged us to study history They took us on trips and helped us appreciate how unique our country was and how special our freedoms were. And that kind of grew in me for a while. thought I was just going to be a normal person. And then when the Affordable Care Act was passed, I realized that the federal government was taking over Minnesota's health care system. At the time, we had coverage for kids up to age 25. We had three safety nets in place for the poor and the working poor. We had robust disability programs, and we still had reasonably affordable insurance and low uninsured rates. And here was this one-size-fits-all answer, and instead of yelling at the TV, I decided to go do something about it. So I knocked on doors and won my race. 
That's outstanding. You mentioned that you thought you were going to be a normal person. You've decided to become that species known as politician. What is the popular caricature of politicians? What does it get right and what does it get wrong? I think it certainly gets more things wrong than it gets right. But say a little bit about that. The things that are the worst about politicians are probably true. They manipulate. There's always chess playing and two reasons for whatever they're doing. They overly think about elections. But what I've found, if you're going to be successful at maintaining who you are as a person and be in politics, you have to not do those things. You can't obviously be completely transparent with legislative strategy, but you can be honest. You can see the humanity in people who you oppose politically. That doesn't mean you have to tolerate abuse and name-calling and the terrible things that we see happening on social media and in some of the regular media. Um, But there are people who are manipulative and deceptive, and you need to just keep them at a distance if you want to maintain who you are as a person and be involved in politics. So politics and politicians are uh, suffer from the effects of original sin like the rest of us. Yeah. Oh, yes, we are, we are not <laughs> exempt. And in fact, it is an environment that rewards being less than honest. It's an environment that will destroy marriages it, because you get all these accolades for doing things that you would not otherwise have the opportunity to do. I mean, look, I get the privilege of being on your radio show. Are you going to have a mechanic on your show? Probably not. You might have a doctor. And so just being aware that you're in this environment that rewards you in ways that you would not otherwise be rewarded, you have to keep your guard up. And pride being one of the seven deadly sins, it's right there at the heart of what politicians do every day. You get people to vote for you and say nice things about you. And so you just have to be on guard against that. I, I, and it's the first of the seven deadly sins. And I think it's there for a reason, because it leads to so many of the others. Looking at the election results, Senator Benson, Minnesota, I think, retains its title of being the only state legislature with divided bodies, a Republican Senate and a DFL-controlled House. What's your take on the election results? Republicans made gains uh, in Minnesota, held the Senate, but then uh, President Trump seems to have been defeated pretty handily, and Republicans still lose statewide races. What, what do you make of the election results, and how does that shape the strategy of the Republican Senate going forward? As I look at Minnesota's districting, the way we establish our legislative districts has been done by a court and not by a legislative body. There hasn't been Democrat or Republican control of our redistricting. And so that contributes to a divided legislature, I think, because the balance is always close. Sometimes you get a wave election, but I think the people who knew their local legislators could overcome some of the noise that was happening at the national level. Winning statewide races in Minnesota is challenging for Republicans because there is such population concentration. And frankly, Republican legislators haven't done a great job of reaching people in the inner city and in minority communities 
who might agree with us but don't know that they have someone who would share their voice. Now, interestingly, despite the way the media has portrayed it, President Trump made large gains among especially Hispanic voters and seems to be a growing wisdom in the political chattering class that the Republican future is economically populist and socially conservative. How does that affect your strategy and your legislative agenda going forward? And maybe I should ask first, do you even agree with that analysis? I think it's it's true. Economic populism is pretty easy. You know, let's just spend other people's money. Um, hate the rich is um, traditionally a mantra of um, sort of a, a radical progressive movement. Um, but I think some of the economic populism comes out of a, a growing awareness that some of the managers of our large corporations and even the owners of our large corporations don't see Christ in their employees and in their customers, and they have made the drive for profit more than anything else in their life. I don't talk about my faith in political arguments, but we need to think about how different capitalism, which is our struggle and strive to use our gifts and talents, and receive material reward, how do we use that in a Christ-like way? And that would be a resolution, I think, to the power of economic populism and some of the envy of the wealthy. But I think you're right, so long as we can't fix the fundamental absence of Christ in capitalism as it's formed now, I think economic populism is going to continue to grow in popularity. Republicans have traditionally underscored the importance of free markets, job growth, job creation. But now we have this phenomenon known as woke capitalism, where businesses and especially big businesses are the leading instigators of cultural change and not in a way that's sympathetic to other Republican priorities, such as social conservative values, religious freedom and things like that. How do you navigate that, given the influence of the business community within the Republican Party and your priorities, but at the same time, they're working against what are some other uh, Republican values as well. And they're not necessarily working against Republican values. Um, they're working against standards that our communities have had for a long time. And when you stand in a place, and, and in your case and mine, it comes from our belief that there is a God and he has a plan and there is dignity in his design. When you stand in that place and people who don't see God or don't like God or feel threatened by God come at you, um, then it looks like you're resisting when all you're actually doing is standing up. And so, you know, I don't know how other than people of faith also being in the corporate world, um, building their own businesses. And, and people of faith have to start making some decisions about what businesses they support. That's and I know that's hard, and I'm not calling for boycotts en masse by Catholics, but I am saying you as an individual, if you continue to shop at a place that spends hundreds of millions of dollars trying to undermine your values, and, and let's be clear, they're not going to stop with just 
their corporate beliefs. They are going to keep pushing until it is in the school that you send your children to, regardless of faith. They are going to start compelling churches and church organizations, as we saw with adoptions um, through Catholic Charities and Catholic Social Services, or I'm sorry, through Catholic Social Services. They're going to start compelling change that if you are at all in the public square, you're going to have to fall in line. And that means it's going to be in your Catholic elementary schools. Those corporate beliefs will end up in your Catholic elementary school, and there will be laws. And and one of my concerns, and I know we haven't talked about presidential politics, as much as Joe Biden professes his Catholic faith, I worry about religious liberty in a Biden administration. The lawsuit against the Little Sisters of the Poor having to sue the federal government to maintain their Catholic faith because of the Affordable Care Act, which was put in place under a Biden administration. And the judges that are normally nominated by the progressive left do not value your right to practice your religion in your work. Conscience rights, for example, should a doctor be compelled to perform transgender surgeries on children? Indeed, that's very well said. And there's a big Supreme Court case that we've covered on this show, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, that you referenced, Senator Benson, that is going to be pretty decisive on these questions. But your important note that judges do, in fact, matter. These are important questions that we have to be proactive in pushing back against, particularly in our schools. So thank you for that wise counsel and on that religious liberty front. Let me shift a little bit. Given your experience in healthcare policy, chairing the HHS Finance and Policy Committee last session, um, let's talk a little bit about the state's response to COVID-19. You've been right in the center of that, watching what's going on. What lessons have we learned from the standpoint of state government and how to respond to healthcare crisis? What has it shown? What has it revealed? Where are our strengths? Where might our weaknesses be? I think the overarching lesson is government can force a lot of things, but you can't change the inherent nature of people. People want to be connected. People want to go and do things. And one of the the flaws in our response is I thought this summer we should have been much more open because we knew the virus was going to come back very strong in the fall. And we're, you know, our hospitals are facing unprecedented challenges, but our people have now been under this pressure for so long that things are starting to break in our human relationships. The election exacerbated this and families are breaking over whether or not you wear masks to a holiday celebration. Does the government have the right to shut down our churches? No, All the answer those, to that is no. <laughs> no. Um, and, and, and when they, and, and my argument was, well, uh, and, and this is a, 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 a sort of glib argument, but when the legislature tells the University of Minnesota to do something, the University of Minnesota says, oh, no, no, we pre-existed the state of Minnesota. You can't tell us what to do. And so literally it's like the first Catholic church pre-existed the state of Minnesota. Maybe you shouldn't tell us what to do either. Um, but I, I do applaud 
um, Archbishop Hebda and the other bishops for taking this seriously and trying to make sure our churches weren't a place of spread. I, I wish that they had just been allowed to do that without having to fight with the government over how to do it appropriately, because I think that connection, our connection to sacraments, is so important. And thank goodness for the dispensation that says if you, you know, if you're afraid of getting sick, you don't need to be an act of spiritual communion that is so important. But we are seeing mental illness, addiction, abuse. We are seeing fatigue in our healthcare workers. There is a lot that is going to be broken for a long time, even once we get a vaccine in place. But I'm asking people now and in the future, be responsible for your family and think about the impact you're having on our healthcare system. If this were a declared war, we would all be, you know, supporting our troops and trying not to make their lives harder. And we need to do that for our healthcare workers too. And not because the governor says so or the government mandates it, but because we need to care about other people and how do we make their lives easier and better to the extent that we can. Senator Benza, do you think this COVID pandemic has allowed us to rethink this concept of solidarity? And and let me frame it this way. There's a slogan among pro-choicers that, you know, my body, my choice. Uh, The same people often who proclaim that in the abortion context are the same ones uh, who are the most vigorous proponents of lockdowns, mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera. Is there a way in which this COVID crisis is going to help us rethink questions related to solidarity, particularly in the healthcare context? I'm thinking assisted suicide issue would be one of them. You know, we talk about preserving lives, even in long-term care. Do you think maybe perhaps on, uh, especially on the left, there might be an opportunity to rethink some of these questions based on what we've been facing? Um, I, I would hope for that, um, I think the impact will be small because people who live with slogans don't think deeply. So I, I don't hold a lot of hope that the COVID response of we have to work to save every life will be transformative in the pro-life movement. I think they only want to save those lives that they value. There's a lot of discussion about what it means to be. There's always been for, you know, since John F. Kennedy had to make that speech in 1960 about what it means to be a Catholic legislator or a Catholic public official. Is there even such thing as a Catholic legislator or is there just such a thing as a good legislator who brings right principles and right forms of action and prudence to the job? Or do you think there is something distinct about being a legislator and being Catholic? What does that mean to you? Maybe you could unpack that for us a little bit from your perspective. One of the true blessings of my faith, and, and as as with so many, I am a practicing Catholic. I am trying to get better <laughs> at this every day. But the teachings of the Catholic Church are aligned with logic, because God is reason, and our teachings have to make sense in His creation, and He would not create illogical things. And logic also works well in the public square. And yes, you have to have feelings and empathy and compassion um, for the experiences people are having in their life. But you don't have to evangelize by using words in the public space. You can evangelize by behaviors that 
are not incongruous with your faith, in fact, can be founded in your faith. And that is one of the great blessings of being Catholic and in public office. I think the the anchor, though, for me is that in the end, I know who I'm accountable to, and I need to keep my soul intact, my marriage intact, and my family intact. Regardless of what decisions I make, if I focus on those things, then I can get through really hard things from people who disagree with me politically, maybe disagree with me faith-wise. Again, I can stand where I am, be clear about why I'm there, and as long as I keep my soul intact, I, I know I can be okay. Politics is is passing for me. It is not my goal. And so try to do the right thing, take the slings and arrows, make hard decisions that are sometimes wrong decisions, admit it, try to fix it. <laughs> the, the grace of the confessional, <laughs> you did something wrong. You need to acknowledge it. You need to be sorry for it. And you need to fix it. Works pretty well in most workplaces. It's especially important in politics. Wow. That was very compelling. Thank you for sharing that, Senator Benson. One, we got time for one last question, and I think uh, a lot of folks are allergic to politics. They don't like the division. Oftentimes they see the big issues that get covered in the media, and maybe there's gridlock or there's partisanship or et cetera, et cetera, and they get turned off to the whole process. But our government system is based on citizen input, citizen engagement, and citizen participation. How would you encourage our listeners in that role of faithful citizenship and maybe offer a couple tips on some practical ways to influence the public policy process? Well, the way you live your life is going to bring your faith to others. It can also bring your public policy worldview to others. I think of a faithful Christian at work, there's going to be something attractive about them. And you're going to be able to have conversations with people who do not share your faith. It's the same thing in politics. If you are continually abrasive and in their face, then you will never be able to, A, lower the temperature on a conversation, but B, bring someone to you. And if you, if you have an elected official that you disagree with, the people who have been the most effective in me, you know, explaining my position and me trying to find common ground are the people who can calmly articulate and, and tell a real story about why it matters to them. I met a young woman who had been pro-choice. She got pregnant. She saw the ultrasound of her baby and decided she wasn't going to have an abortion. She was on the table and saw the ultrasound. So she motivated me beyond my own caring about the pro-life movement to carry the ultrasound bill that said a woman has a right to see their ultrasound before an abortion. And that real story took something that was in my life and in language to something real and motivating. The privilege of living in this country is that we do have religious freedom. We have the right to make so many of our own choices, but we also have a responsibility to not just vote, but serve. Be on a planning commission. Understand this government that 
impacts your life. If it's the park board, if it's running for governor, figure out how you as a citizen servant can help form a government that helps form the world that your children and grandchildren will grow up in. Wonderful. We've been blessed on the show today to have State Senator Michelle Benson. She's a Republican from Ham Lake and uh, really one of our most thoughtful public officials. Uh, Senator Benson, thanks for being on the show. Please know of our prayers and the prayers of our listeners for your good work. Your prayers are needed and appreciated. Thank you very much. Wonderful. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you bring your faith into public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag and see what comments and questions you've been sending our way. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag segment? Yeah, so we're talking about presidential powers, executive orders. As many of us have probably noticed over the years, a lot of different executive orders are often signed by a president when he takes office. Our listener is kind of wondering whether that's actually effective and says, why not just work with Congress to actually make laws? Well, it's important to understand what executives are from what power source do they come from? Article 2 of the United States Constitution delegates certain powers to the president. The president has the authority to enforce laws and create an administration that does so. And so there's a lot of ambiguity oftentimes in laws. Congress can't think when it makes laws and drafts laws, it can't think of every example and cover everything. And sometimes there's a need to interpret those laws when applying them. Now, we have procedures. It's called the Administrative Procedures Act, in which administrative agencies engage in rulemaking to create regulatory schemes around certain laws. Um, but the president can also issue executive orders um, in with his dis- within his discretion to direct uh, federal uh, officials in how to interpret and apply certain laws. And so a president has this power using his pen to give directives to the federal government in its application of law. Some things they can do, some things they can't do, how to interpret a law, how to apply it in a particular context. And again, this power comes from Article 2 of the Constitution. Executive orders are often used when there is an inability to pass something through Congress. And of course, in our Congress, we have Republican Senate uh, most likely to continue. And then we have a Democratic House. So there's gridlock. The the Congress hasn't passed a budget (laughs) since 1979. Some people are surprised to hear that. It's just continuing resolution. So increasingly in a time of gridlock in Congress, when there isn't those aren't those compromises, when things get challenging, the president rules by executive order. Now, what we've seen, though, in the last few administrations is that Obama's president executive orders get wiped out by President Trump, who creates a whole new set of executive orders, which will then get reversed by uh, most likely President Biden. So uh, it's not ideal in terms of how things get done, but it does allow a president to create uh, some sort of regulatory authority around particular issues uh, that he cares about. And then it's up to the courts to review whether or not those are legitimate exercises of his executive authority. Great. Thanks for helping us understand some of those intricacies a little bit more. What do you have in this week's bricklayer segment that might help people really start to put their faith into action before the legislative session? Well, we're preparing to enter into the season of Advent, a penitential season, in case you've forgotten. And our lawmakers are also preparing for the start of the new legislative session. It's the perfect time to dedicate time in prayer for your legislators. And you heard Senator Benson talk about the importance of prayer. 
and the, the need for prayer uh, for our elected officials. I can tell you when we do action alerts encouraging uh, our members of our Catholic Advocacy Network, which you should, can join at mncatholic.org, to pray for their legislators, we get a lot of appreciative notes back from people on all sides, people of all faiths and backgrounds who are just grateful that people are taking the time not just to demand things from them, but to be in relationship and to pray for them, too, because they need it and they're appreciative. Over the next four weeks, we want to encourage you to take just one hour and spend it in adoration for your public officials. Uh, we do believe that prayer works and that prayer matters and that people's hearts and minds can be enlightened. Prepare your hearts for the coming of Christ and ask that he help prepare our elected officials that they may seek to know his will, and that they would further have the courage to act upon it. We know that because of COVID, it might be more difficult to find an adoration chapel near you that it is open. But if you can't make it to a chapel, still set aside an hour of prayer this Advent season for all of our elected leaders. If you'd like to pray specifically for each of your elected leaders by name, go to the Minnesota Catholic Conference Action Center to look up who represents you. That address is mncatholic.org slash action center, and then click on the directory and type in your address. Be sure to sign up for the Catholic Advocacy Network as well to receive updates and action alerts on important legislation during this upcoming session. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on our podcast apps, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics build the bridge between faith and public life. Let us know what you thought of today's episode. Leave us a comment on the podcast episode. Connect with us on social media or email us at show at mncatholic.org. You can also catch up on past podcast episodes on our website, mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Sapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks so much for listening, and have a blessed Advent.